If you want to cross notes on a deal, ask a fellow woman within 30 seconds. I almost always have the answer. And so we have to hunt in packs these days. It's the hunger games out there. And the beautiful thing is we share knowledge. We share networks in order to help us all get there faster. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Less than two out of every $100 invested in venture capital goes to women and minority-owned startups. And in venture capital funds, the number of general partners, those are the ones who run the show, the general partners that are women range between 15 and 30%. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Lisa Salud, founder and general partner at R3i Capital, where she transforms the world's most promising deep tech companies by accelerating their growth. I've invited Lisa because her own career is an amazing example of how to break into and succeed in the venture capital industry. More importantly, we want to discuss her views on elevating women in entrepreneurship and investment. She is a tireless advocate for DEI and a power player. Those are my words. She probably wouldn't use those words herself. That really harnesses her affiliations, activities, and platforms to increase women in entrepreneurship, to level the playing field for female founders getting access to capital, and to increase the success rate of women leaders. In particular, she also, and I'm excited to hear her perspectives, because she invests heavily outside the US, Asia, Europe, emerging markets. Lisa is a globetrotting super connector, community builder, and there isn't an angle or domain in this space that she hasn't touched. Investor and entrepreneur, board and advisory, educator, speaker, and author on all topics related to investing, technology, and the new economy. Finally, Lisa is clinical professor of practice at SMU Cox School of Business and lecturer and speaker at dozens of elite forums and institutions, including Singapore Management University and IE Business School. She hails from Australia and currently resides with her family in Europe. Lisa, I know how incredibly busy you are. You just came out of a board meeting. Thank you for joining me amid your busy schedule. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you for having me, Michael. Lisa, you have had an amazing path. And if my memory serves correctly, when we, when we first met, you initially were headed down a different path uh, around medicine. So if we fast forward today, you have a powerful perch investing in tech, companies and people that seek to transform society for good. But looking back, was there a top formative experience here that that got you to where you're at now? Yeah, that's a great question. I have to say that 
ultimately what I do is purpose-driven. When I was a little girl, I was the one that used to look after all the elderly in my neighborhood, right? I would go and read to them or spend time with them, keep them company. And that little community service worker for my school, you know, selling chocolate bars for the local charities, that was in my veins since I could walk. And so being in venture is me feeling a missing middle. It's a market opportunity where there is a great deal of risk and what I call room for vulture capital. And as you know, uh, we just talked about the rates of women getting access to capital, but it's not just women. It's people who live in small markets, often much lower valued than people who live in large markets. And as a result, raising any form of venture capital is going to be heavily dilutive. And so my point was watching these research scientists constantly go out to die I saw an opportunity to deliver an active service. It's one of my languages of love. And an active service, not just in making sure that they didn't get impacted by vulture capital, such that their technology could not only survive, but also thrive. But knowing that I could make a contribution with my network to rapidly grow that top line and get it ready for exit, or to rapidly transform it across borders, in order to take it out of a small market into a large market so that they could continue to raise the essential capital. It was just a natural for me. And it was so funny because they would sit in my classroom and say, Prof, help me, help me. And I would say, I'm so sorry, ethically, I can't help you, but go and talk to these 10 people and they'll all be able to help you and come back when you graduate. And maybe if I'm, if you still need it, I can help you. And they would just line up, Michael. And so... You know, instead of just serving them out to the community, I decided to start putting my own money where my mouth was and rapidly those checks run out. And so now I am very actively professionalized as an organization. I've built a team across 12 markets. We're raising funds and taking these companies cross-border. We're doing it not only in the smart city areas where we were investing in Southeast Asia, but now we're doing that on a global scale across Asia Pacific, across Europe, and across the US. And you brought up a a term here, which some of the listeners may not be familiar with, vulture capital. Just in a nutshell, I mean, it's probably is what it sounds like, but vulture capital, are those coming in and absolutely taking advantage of people or another definition there? No, that's my Australian slang. Okay. Um, We have venture capital and we have vulture capital. It's those that come in with unfair market terms, those that take away founders' controls, those that push a female founder out of the CEO seat because they can. I remember I've had a few experiences in my career where we were told in one of our ventures, yes, you can have that 10 million, but you need to fire your business partner that you've been working with for the last 27 years. And I had to watch this man fire his business partner who had five children on Christmas Eve just in order to get the necessary capital for the company. And so often there isn't the smartest capital at the table. And our mission is to help our founders connect to smart capital. Hmm. So talking more about breaking into VC, kind of your own personal experience, clearly brilliant. Your writing is all over the place and you work insanely hard. But we know oftentimes in organizations and different industries, these are kind of table stakes, right, to to be there. And you also 
many people who are smart and work hard get overlooked, get taken advantage of situations in terms of way things are currently structured. And then they get passed over, right? Can't have the impact they seek or positions of, of power or influence. And so to be brutally honest, right, women are underrepresented. You kind of breaking into that yourself. You said it was kind of natural progression. You're probably skipping over some things that you really had to do. Was there a particular challenge or piece that really ratcheted up your ability to make an impact in the sector? You know, I think I've always been a leader. That helps, right? Doesn't matter what room I walk into. For whatever reason, I will stand out. And I think I always come in led by service, Michael. So I'm always there to lend a hand. That's a very Aussie trait. And I'm always there to add value too. And I don't think that's common across the world, that notion of of giving before you get. And so I think in all of the communities where I operate, I'm a very giving contributor. And that has helped me to establish my profile, my competencies, my capabilities among a very broad and diverse global audience. If you want a competitive advantage in venture, you better get rid of the information asymmetries. And my natural networking capabilities is actually really my competitive advantage. I was able to go global day one because I was already global. I didn't need to build that from start. I was able to connect in interculturally because I speak very badly five languages. All of these intercultural capabilities and capacities helped me to get over, which is often the case for women, the networking requirements that are essential in venture capital. Also, there is a lot of old norms in venture capital that have nothing to do with those led by women. As you know, this is a very male-dominated industry. And venture was not always a place where you could do a course or read a book. You weren't necessarily going to find the answers there. And I can tell you even today, you're not going to always find the answers that you need written somewhere. It's an organization somewhat driven through internship, right? Through what we call in Europe a stage, where you are bought in because of someone you know, because you're trusted, and you find your way up through an organization. I kind of turned that on its head. But I've spent 10 years of my career in the responsible investment markets. And so I have very, very strong views, values-based views about what good investments look like, what good capital looks like. And I wasn't willing to compromise on those values. And as a responsible investor, nor should I. And so I actually spun out of the original venture capital firm that I was building to forge my own firm and to forge a massive global team that takes out those information asymmetries, who's way smarter than I will ever be, who could help me to translate very rapidly into the markets where we needed to be. So I think when we think about women coming into venture, the traditional regime has been get a job in investment banking, get a job for a management consultancy, and then you might find your way into venture. I, as you know, came absolutely the other way. I have always been a serial entrepreneur. I've always been an operator taking companies global. I've served as an advisor, as an entrepreneur in residence to governments, um, to accelerators taking companies global. And so I just focused on the core competencies, the things I knew I was good at. And I surrounded myself with a team 
that really addressed all the things that I was not good at, all the things that builds out that repertoire of technical assistance that a founder needs to get from A through to exit. Um, And that really has helped us break into the industry. We're not there yet, Michael. I have to say I did go to some excellent accelerators in venture, one of which is Cool Water Capital, which is a beautiful network that is filled with camaraderie and what we call a global hive of knowledge. So if there's something you don't know, you can ask the stupid questions on a regular basis. I took advantage of the Global Women VC Network, where there's more than 5,000 women in venture, just under 200 female GPs that own the bulk of their carry. We've got WhatsApp groups. If you want to know something about an LP, you just ask a fellow woman. If you want to cross notes on a deal, ask a fellow woman. Within 30 seconds, I almost always have the answer. And so we have to hunt in packs these days. It's the Hunger Games out there. And the beautiful thing is we share knowledge, we share networks in order to help us all get there faster. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. You mentioned a minute ago, and this is, it's like the first word that comes to mind when I think of you is, is your giving and your introductions, right? Harnessing the network. And in fact, we met when I was looking to fill out an expert panel around opportunities in Southeast Asia. And you almost immediately said yes. It probably fit into your sweet spot there. But I, I want to ask, because this is a, a challenge, and I, I see in my practice, you know, those who are givers, and the research would show, they do do the best, Adam Grant's research, but they sometimes fall on the other end of the bell curve because they get taken advantage of. And, and so it's this yeah. part we want, and we know that giving helps. But there's a lot of vultures out there who will take advantage of that. Is there, is there a critical piece people need? And I think this happens to underrepresented groups because of information asymmetries, power asymmetries, et cetera, yeah. that they really need to keep in mind so they end up on the right end of that bell curve. I'm a risk manager, Michael. I'm an opportunity manager, let's be honest. I'm in venture, but I'm absolutely a risk manager. And we've had a hard road to raising capital. I've navigated everything from families laundering Chinese money to a investor who thought that in exchange for his funds, he could harass my team and having to build those deals one check at a time and put it all back together, which took us almost nine months to do. Like we've lived the craziness that is venture and the early stage funding ecosystem. And it's no better for female founders, right? And so I think the one thing is, is always be a risk manager. At the end of the day, we're fiduciary stewards of capital. That means first and foremost, I am a risk manager. I'm an opportunity manager, absolutely, because we You know, we manage all of our arbitrage, the geographic arbitrage out of small markets into big markets, the gender arbitrage, markets where nobody else is hunting, where we should absolutely be hunting. And also that non-dilutive capital arbitrage that you can get through arbitraging different markets in order to get there faster. But most importantly, I think the one thing is, is that we are risk managers and we are hardened. It was so funny. I met um, the head of the Interpol Fund. And he said, sorry, what number of fund are you on? Because it sounds like you've been in business for a really long time. You know, we have built a machinery in venture 
that is probably unheard of at the stage where we are. Because we had such a rocky road out the gate in early stage venture funding, now we are institutional ready. We are as hard as we should be in fund three as we are today. And we're in fund one, right? And we've been doing it, you know, as women make the most of every dollar that's handed to them. We've been entrepreneurial in terms of the creation of capital in order to build this engine. Uh, but most importantly, we've been prudent. And I think that helps. If you want to get returns in venture, lowest cost of operations and highest diversification. And so that, that risk management piece, you say, that's a willingness to stick to your values and say no. Is it a willingness to, to monitor trust? Because we know that's kind of this fundamental piece. It, when you go real brass taxes, is it those pieces or is there something else? Because you, you think very deeply about this. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is in any kind of information analysis, take statistics, you need more than three sources of information to get good, right? You can't trust one, you can't trust two, three is the minimum. And so one is garner as much information as you possibly can. So I know a lot of venture capitalists have been wrapped over the knuckles for spraying and praying that is not doing the work. The one thing you know about me, Michael, is I always do the work uh, and my team always do the work. I think the second thing is, is being a value add to your portfolio companies. Mm. People don't disclose when they don't have the psychological safety to disclose. Right. My job is to make sure that I get maximum levels of disclosures so we can make the best possible decisions. And so I think the most important thing for us is having those deep bonded relationships with our founders, with our limited partners, and always having that transparency and psychological safety for disclosure. How do you do that, right? Because this, the term and the research, very convincing here, but it's becoming, you know, the overused word. <laughs> I was recently at a, a, giving a, a giving a talk and everyone's talking about psychological safety, but when you ask them, you know, you don't quite, you know, sense that they really understand what that is. And so what what are like those practical steps? Because you, you need this. Like you said, you want to know what's going on in your organization. You want them to tell you when something's going wrong. Like, is there one or two, there's clearly many elements here, but that you really focus on to get that environment? Fundamentally, it's around building trust, right? And so how do you build trust? In a physical environment, it's three positive meetings, and that I will do what I say I'm going to do. And you have confidence that if I say something, that there is truth in what I've said to you, right? It, it's really a matter of observation over a period of events. In a virtual environment, that moved to seven contact points in order to build trust. So it took longer because we were in a virtual environment. So that's true. Being physical is often faster in order to get the job done. But the key point here is when you're in a virtual environment, often you have resources available that you just don't have when you're in a physical meeting. So if your job is to observe me doing what I say I'm going to do, I can often do it faster. I can often do it smarter because I'm connected to my intelligence hub at the moment of communication. And most importantly, I'm connected to my network. Right. If you ask me something, Michael, it's very likely that while you're talking to me, I've already found what I need and I can give it to you straight away. I can't do that if we're sitting in a bar having a cup of coffee. 
So I think one is that consistent contact over time and that execution of what you say you're going to do builds trust. I think the second thing is, is sharing your own lessons learned. There is value in demonstrating vulnerability, not stupidity, vulnerability, and and sharing the road that you've worn where you made the mistake and you got it wrong and you pivoted and you got it right, or you still got it wrong and you failed fast and you moved on. And sharing with your founders that it's okay to fail. One in every 300,000 inventions is going to be a success. 299, 999 will not be a success. So I think for the most part, it's demonstrating that vulnerability, showing that it was my road, my mistake made, my adaptation, etc. And knowing that they have to walk their own path, that their situation and context are different, and that they have an opportunity to ask themselves the hard questions. So we also give them some creative and critical thinking skills to help them make those decisions faster, smarter, and amidst the VUCA environment in which most of them are living, where they don't have all the information at hand. These pieces that you've highlighted, I think are fantastic because again, if you look across the whole venture industry, right, my, my time in Silicon Valley, everyone, every venture capital firm says, yeah, we help you, we do all these things, but we, we know like most of them don't. <laughs> and it's that pressure and the vulture aspect here. And, and so if we flip this around, because I know you, you're helping and there's entrepreneurs out there listening, you want to do your due diligence and pay attention to things you said, but is there something before they accept the money, you know, because everyone will say, we're going to do it, that they should be particularly looking for as like, here's the due diligence piece you should do to detect whether you're getting BS on the other side or, or this vulture or venture firm really walks the, the talk. So I would always ask other founders, other founders who've taken their money, what's it been like for you? They know what it's like. They've had the 3X liquidation preference They've been wound back on controls. They've had the VC's mates bought in on the table. That means they're just stacking the board with dumb money that's not going to add any value to the asset. Ownership does matter for a VC. And so there is a certain amount of ownership that a VC needs to get in on that deal in the first place. But I think really, you know, the real stories, just like we map LPs and we map founders, they need to map us. Um, And I think personal stories and personal experiences are always one of the best ways to triangulate information. Remember, not one source, but multiple sources of touchpoint. The other thing I would say is just have a look in the market at that company and, for example, have a look at who are their repeat co-investors. We often co-invest together in deals because we know and trust one another and we know that they're going to add value to the deal. We don't co-invest with dumb money, right? Not on a regular basis. Maybe you'll do it once to fill out a round, but you're not going to do it forever. And so I think um, find the tribes that exist because we do exist and find who invests with who uh, and make sure that you're triangulating not just that first investor, but who do they also bring to the table in the later rounds in order to top up into that company. I'm going to have to top it up from my angel networks. If I really believe and have conviction, I'm going to give it to my families to co-invest alongside me. But ultimately, I have a finite mandate by which I can invest. The question is, is 
Where does that money come in after? So don't just take an investor for this round. You have to diversify your cap table to make sure that you're going to have that positive signal for future rounds. And so when you're doing your due diligence, you're not just reviewing those seed investors. You're reviewing who came in on the Series A after those investors and who did they introduce to the table. They're the kind of questions you want to ask the existing investee companies. Incredibly practical pieces to look for. Lisa, let's return next week to discuss more of your personal experience breaking through as a woman in tech and venture. Specifically, some of the ways you have built community and the ecosystem to increase the success rate of women leaders. Thank you for your time here. How do people best reach you, see your work, invest with you, get funded by you? I think the first thing is just go to my LinkedIn and just connect to me on LinkedIn and say g'day. That's the best way. You can find a link there if you want to submit your company for investment. Um, Most of all, if you're an allocator, give me a call. I'm closing a fund. Very exciting. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Michael. As we say at She Loves Tech, let's build tomorrow together. Tune into the next episode of 97% Effective, where I finish my conversation with Lisa Salud founder and general partner at R3i Capital, about how to leverage the power of networks, community, and technology to accelerate the advancement of women in entrepreneurship and investment. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.